Lights. You are listening to Marvel's Pull List for new comics on sale May 26, 2021. I'm Ryan Panagos, a.k.a. H&M. And I'm Tucker Marcus. Tucker, the most important thing in our worlds right now is that for those of us in these United States, the entirety of Marvel's MODOK is now available oh, for yeah. our viewing pleasure on Hulu. <laughs> and I urge every one of our listeners, if you like comic books, if you like Marvel, you will go watch Marvel's MODOK. <laughs> and I mentioned this on This Week in Marvel, but eagle-eyed viewers may see a familiar face <laughs> oh. on the show. We'll leave it at that. Enjoy the show when you watch it. <laughs> Tucker, we are here to tell you all about the brand new Marvel Comics on sale. We're going to give you our picks of the week. And I will tell you right now, this was a very difficult week for us to narrow down. Yeah. It's a really great week of Marvel Comics. We're going to talk about those. We'll tell you what trades are at, what's on Marvel Unlimited. And we have a great chat this week. Who's our guest? Our guest this week is The Ringer's Charles Holmes. And we are talking about X-Men Supernovas. So if you're reading up on Marvel Unlimited, head over to X-Men number 188 and kick off your reading and then dive into what is a really fun reading club. Charles really knows his stuff. It was really, really fun. Yeah. Uh, Before we get to that, let's get into these new Marvel comics. One of our picks of the week is Heroes Reborn. This week, it's issue number four. And uh, there's two stories as we've been doing. I will say the second story, as has been going on, is sort of about the ongoing thread of figuring out how to get the Marvel Universe back to normal, starring Blade and Captain America as they assemble the Avengers team. This one is awesome. It's written by Jason Aaron with art by Ed McGinnis and Mark Morales and Matt Wilson, where they find the uh, Starbrand. Uh, Starbrand, as you know, is a baby. And it's really cool. That one's wonderful. It's got all space stuff. And it ties into the main story in this issue. And the main story, written by Jason, art by, I think, probably my favorite comic book artist at this time, James Stokoe. James is a tour de force, super detailed, incredibly weird, a wonderful color palette. This issue is a spotlight on Dr. Spectrum. Dr. Spectrum is the character in the Squadron Supreme of America who has this power prism that lets him do all kinds of wild stuff, create weapons and and fly. And in this iteration of Dr. Spectrum, he's intense. You see like a watcher in this version of reality with his eyes gone and messed up Because of Dr. Spectrum, you see aliens gathered together to destroy him. We see how he severed the head of a celestial to make the prison of nowhere. And most of this issue is a battle between Dr. Spectrum and Rocket Raccoon and Groot. And it is gnarly. It is weird. It is big action adventure. Anytime I get a James Stokoe issue, it is going to be my favorite thing. And this lives up to every single possibility I could have hoped for. Heroes Reborn itself has been a true, true joy. And this is maybe my highlight of the run so far. Jumping over to my pick with the delightful Daniel Warren Johnson, who brings us Beta Ray Bill number three. We're very much in the heart of this story now. And Paralleled to that emotional journey that Bill is on, we also get an emotional journey that Scuttlebutt is on, the very ship of Beta Ray Bill and its uh, sort of android humanoid form that it takes, aka Scut. The connection between these two characters is just incredible. It's beautiful. It's really touching. All the 
history of Beta Ray Bill, where he's been, his interactions, his fights, all of that actually does play a material part in this story in, in direct relation to Scuttlebutt. Beyond that, we also have Scourge in here. That's a character that I think takes full advantage of the scratchy, chaotic, wild style that Daniel Warren Johnson is bringing in particular to this series. And he's just so much fun. But I hasten to add the art that we're looking at in this issue and in the previous two issues. It's just unbelievable. It's just incredible. I love how much Daniel clearly delights in like the six inch action figure, like playtime of it all. You can tell that he loves peeking into the corners of the ship. How does the ship work? How does this gun turret work? How does the ship transform in this crucial moment? He has this style where he'll go into those micro moments, these little things, these little changes, these little visual shifts with these super small panels that just kind of are slotted in between the bigger sequential stuff that's slotted in at the end of a page that just adds so much flavor and color and movement to the story. I could go berserk over this issue and this series for a really long time. You know, I'm, I'm reminded, Ryan, of your love for the Killmonger series, that limited series that we read by Brian Edward Hill. And one for you. And yeah. we're uh, three issues into this one, and I'm like, man, this one might have a place on my shelf, much like that one did for you. It is so good. It is so good. It is tremendous. Uh, we are joined momentarily here on the show <laughs> uh, while I put on special guest. shoes with Superstar. Ms. Catherine Grace. Catherine, say hello. Hi. (laughs) I'm going to go help you outside. You say goodbye to the podcast. Bye. All right. Now that the the Catherine Grace portion of the show has passed, (laughs) we still have more picks to go through. And here's a new number one that we wanted to pick. It is Reptile number one. It is written by Terry Bloss, penciled by Enid Balam. Inked by Victor Olazaba, colors by Carlos Lopez, and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. As far as I know, this is among the first works for Marvel by Terry and Enid, which is just cool. They come out the gate with a really, really wonderful story. If anybody doesn't know who Reptile is, um, it's a character created a couple of years ago. He has an amulet that allows him to basically turn into any dinosaur he wants. And that comes with its pluses and minuses. If he goes too dinosaur, he kind of loses control. Really, really rad character who's kind of been out of the spotlight for a couple of years. And this book sort of like takes that into account. You get the full origin in here. You get everything you need to know to dive into who Reptile is. You get that, but you also get the sense of like, here's where he is in his life. And he's kind of, he's young, but he's kind of moved on from being a superhero. There's too much drama into it. He's he's dealt with so much in his young life. He's lost his parents. They seem to have disappeared. He doesn't want to accept that they may have more than disappeared. He's, you know, living with different parts of his family. He's reconnecting with that. And family is such an important part of this storyline. I, I really enjoyed the way that Terry and Enid really brought that to the fore and how they really like built around Humberto Lopez, uh, Reptile and and his ancestry, his culture, all these different things. It's a wonderful first issue. It really does kind of exactly what you need a book like this to do, especially of a character that a lot of folks don't really know, but who has really great powers. Like if I was a kid And I heard that there was a Marvel superhero with the ability to turn into any dinosaur. I would lose my flipping mind. Yeah, I give all the flowers to this creative team for coming in here and doing really, really great work on a brand new book. I'm very excited for where this goes. 
Yeah. Hey, shout out to book editor Lauren Amaro, who is crushing it across the board. So good from everyone involved in that series. All right. This is our special pick as we move on to Black Panther number 25, the finale of the Tanahasi Coates Black Panther era, including both volumes, of course, some of the most consequential, some of the most celebrated, some of the most influential comics around. This issue is brought to you by Tanahasi Coates, Daniel Acuna, and Brian Stelpreis with Acuna and Laura Martin on colors and letters by VCs Joe Sabino. One, what a finale. Really spine-tingling, chilling moments. It was a really rewarding read, I'll say that. Not just in so far as seeing Shuri, seeing the Dora, seeing the Black Panther, consuming the story that they've been so emotionally and deeply involved with and seeing how much these characters have been challenged over the course of these 25 issues. And then before that, going to the the previous run, it's obviously rewarding in that sense, but it's also rewarding in the sense of, you know, our universe. It is so cool just to see the progress, the changes that have been made to this character, what's been added to this character, and what a different comic book storyteller Ta-Nehisi Coates is from 2016's Black Panther number one through to 2021's Black Panther number 25. It is so cool to be able to finish off this run, to have such a rewarding and powerful experience, to have some moments where you just flip the page and the hair on your arm stands up. It is an issue really, really befitting of the 24 that came before it. The climax, the emotional peaks that we reach here and where we leave it off is all really fascinating and just a testament to the work that has been put into this character into this run. This is one of those things that I think we'll continue to be talking about where you go, wow, what a time. What a time for that character. What a time for that book. What a time for Marvel Comics because it has been just such a ride. Yeah, I mean, it's the 25th issue of this run, but there's still, you know, all the other issues. It's like total of 50 some odd issues or whatever it is. It's really incredible and it is moving Black Panther forward. Look, we're not slowing down with Black Panther come August. Our faces are going to be destroyed by John Ridley and Juan Cabal. (laughs) Holy moly, I cannot wait. All right, we have to get into the rest of our new comics this week. Now, Tucker, we did not talk about an award name for this week, but I was thinking because we have so many good books, why don't we give out Platinum Awards? Hell yeah. All right, we'll be giving out some Platinum (laughs) Awards this week for all the rest of the books that are out. First up, we have Alien Number 3. It gets my Platinum Award for giving me that sweet, sweet Lance Henriksen action as uh, we get to see a Bishop model in this issue with, like, Flamethrower. It looks friggin' awesome. It's very exciting. If you are a fan of the Alien franchise of movies, this is just, it fits in so well, so well. Absolutely. All right, moving on now to Black Widow. Number seven, this is one of those books that, folks, I don't think we can emphasize it enough. If you're not on board, get on board. I will also say in this issue, Elena Casagrande, who brings pencils, has some really like unique challenges to execute as put forth by Kelly in the writing, and it just comes off incredibly well. This book, every single time I feel like I can nail it down and describe it, it takes another wild left turn, which I think is so perfect for a really kinetic character like Black Widow. It's just awesome. Yeah. 
All right, we have three Heroes Reborn tie-in issues this week. Again, Heroes Reborn is sort of the idea that this is a world without the Avengers. Instead, the Squadron Supreme of America are the ones protecting America and Earth and sort of the main superheroes, but they're not very nice. And so we get to see how that sort of conflicts with the rest of the Marvel Universe and and the differences in this reality. And in this one, uh, we've got Heroes Reborn, Magneto, and the Mutant Force. It is a story about the mutants. One of the reasons why I love these Heroes Reborn books so much is it evokes the feeling that I got when I would start to read Marvel comics. I was jumping into stories that had been going on and I was experiencing them for the first time. And so while Heroes Reborn, we're only getting these one-off issues, the idea is that all these amazing creators have built years of backstory and and things that have gone on and I'm just jumping in and it it evokes that feeling of, oh my gosh, I want to go and read all the other books around these. Uh, and this one is no different. You've got um, sort of the the differences um, in the, the, there's the classic Days of Future Past storyline where Mystique and the Brotherhood were trying to murder a senator. And, and if they did that, then the world would go one way and all this other stuff. What's well, that kind of setup where the X-Men in this case were sort of making their last stand and the Squadron Supreme battle them and it goes horribly wrong and you get to see the world in which mutants are persecuted and sort of put off on their own little island and it's horrifying but it's also told with such love and care Steve Orlando writing it and then the reveal through the course of this issue to the last page where I was like holy smokes I'm not going to get another issue of this and it's slightly driving me mad but it's so <laughs> yeah. exciting it's so so much fun my uh, platinum goes to the horrific way that Professor X gets taken out in this issue and what actually ends up happening with him in this story. Yeah, we have another uh, one of those stories that is kind of maddening in how much fun it is uh, and knowing that it's all fleeting. It's all happening right now and uh, you got to jump on it while it is. This next one is Heroes Are Born Siege Society number one. My Platinum Award goes to writer Cody Ziegler, who we saw make his Marvel Comics debut with a backup story in a recent issue of Miles Morales. And we have Paco Medina bringing the art here, and it is beautiful stuff. I think that's a perfect pairing and a perfect casting for this book because I would describe Cody's writing in here in particular as just so fast-paced and really just not holding back at all. We see the Siege Society, the characters that are included therein. Of course, the Heroes Reborn spin on those characters. In here, we have Black Widow, Sabretooth, Baron Zemo, Silver Witch, Fire Ant, Soviet Agent, Hawkeye. And then we also, of course, dive more into Hyperion and Nighthawk. This issue is nonstop. It's 100 miles an hour the entire time. And there's something about it that really you just get the sense that the writer and the artist are somehow on this one issue assignment in perfect simpatico. They're just working so beautifully together and we get this great story as a result. Yeah. All right. Our last of the Heroes Reborn books is Young Squadron number one. Uh, It's real fun to see Jim Zub and Steve Cummings come back and do a Champions style book. That's what this one is. It's got Kamala Khan and uh, Sam Alexander and Miles Morales in some different roles as legacy sort of superheroes uh, following in the footsteps of the Squadron Supreme, but sort of realizing that 
the squadron are jerks and maybe they shouldn't fully devote their lives to being heroes like them. My platinum award goes to the version of MODOK that shows up in here because you give me a weird alternate reality MODOK and I'm going to love it. Oh, yeah. Obviously, we're dealing with some masters in this book I'm about to talk about, which is Maestro, War and Pax, issue number five. And the master that I am in particular referring to is, of course, Peter David. But I just love seeing someone who's been at this at the top level for, what, 40 years, I guess? And just delighting in all the choices that they make. And here in particular, we get Maestro lined up with Victor Von Doom in such a cool way. And this is kind of where my platinum mind goes to. This has become, in five issues, one of those stories where you introduce new characters, you introduce new relationships, new storylines, and you are so quickly and succinctly buying into it and emotionally invested in it that you get to a point like this where we're wrapping up the story and you just cannot believe how much you care about what's going on. How this issue wraps up It's like one of my favorite endings in a really long time that we've read. It is so, so good. It's so much fun. This week rules. Uh, All right, let's keep it rolling. We've got Marvel's The Marvels number two, which is sort of the the book that says any character, anytime, anyway, the possibilities are kind of endless. We could see anybody pop up in this book. And this issue has the Punisher, Black Cat, Human Torch, Thing, Arrow, and the new one of the new characters created for here, Kevin Schumer. I think I'm going to give my Platinum Award to um, the cool tech that shows up in here and the ways it's used. I love the sort of sense of world that we're building. I, there's a lot of mysteries going on here, but the core character, Kevin, at the heart of this... I am quickly becoming a fan of like him and what his deal is and, and who he is. I can't wait to see more of him. Next up, we have Miles Morales, Spider-Man number 26. This issue is so good. It's like if you put a droplet of this on your tongue, it would blow your mind with the most power and flavor you could ever experience. Just packed into these little moments, packed into individual panels, individual pages. And a lot of that is brought to you by Carmen Carnero. Uh, it is just incredible. And, and look, pound for pound, when we talked about creative duos, we're talking about creative teams. You line up Saladin Ahmed and Carmen Carnero, you can line those up against anybody else in the game and they'll hold their own weight. They'll bring it. This is a powerful writer artist team. And I am just really salivating and loving every single issue they're bringing to us. Yeah. Speaking of great writer artist teams, New Mutants number 18 is out this week. And I think to me, this is the issue that really solidified how well Vida Ayala and Rod Reese are connecting and clicking. And there's some really interesting stuff going on, a lot of building around of worlds, but the character moments throughout this issue are really, really what soared for me. Uh, and there's a lot of different spins going on, but the moment that I really, really loved the most and the bit that gets my platinum award for this issue is when Gabby, she confronts the Shadow King. She's a Wolverine, so she doesn't back down from anything. And the way that Rod draws her in this panel, the Shadow King is lit from below. He looks all creepy. He says, why don't we talk? Hmm? And he's like, oh, just a creepster. And it's just this close-up of Gabby. She's got a, a barrette in her hair. She goes, you don't scare me, Shadow King, and I won't let you mess with my friends anymore. And I was just like, yeah, Gabby, Vita, <laughs> you were born to write Gabby stories. I can't wait for more. I friggin' love this issue. Oh, yeah, I love it. And the next issue we're talking about is Star Wars Darth Vader, number 12. I love the work that artist Gaiu Villanova is doing in here. I think it's beautiful. It's an incredible challenge, and here's why. 
He's tasked with recreating some of the most iconic moments in Star Wars history, in pop culture history. And he has to do them justice. He has to bring them to life in a new way. That is insanely hard, but he does it. He gets to the heart of these little moments, whether it's with Han Solo, whether it's Vader, whatever it might be, and he just captures it perfectly in perfect light, and it's just gorgeously done. So shout out and platinum award to Greg and Gaio, who I think are just both bringing it so hard on this series. This book just continues to deliver. This series, this title, Darth Vader, continues to deliver because this is another incredible run that we're witnessing in real time happening right now. Uh, All right, we've got another Star Wars sort of prelude to War of the Bounty Hunters issue with Dr. Aphra number 10. I want to give my platinum award to Chelly Aphra for just being the best worst, being the worst best, and sort of how Alyssa Wong and and team handle that duality of Aphra so, so well because she makes the wrong decisions and does the right things and makes the right decisions and does the wrong things and hurts people and helps people. You you can't help but love her and also hate her, just like the other characters in here, especially Son of Staros, who has a, a lot of great moments in here as well. Oh, yeah. All right. We're wrapping it up this week with one final knockout blow with X-Men number 20. My Platinum Award goes to Mystique in here. In the opening pages, we get a bunch of dialogue between Mystique and Forge, two characters that you might not automatically put at the head of what is a really big monumental issue for this X-Men run and for where we are on the island of Kakoa at the moment. But where they are, the conversation they have, and then where that leads us in this story is just incredible. Uh, I'll, I'll stop there because there is too much to dig into here. There's too much to shout about. But what I will say is, This is the issue that is going to melt people's brains, I think. I don't want to say why, but when you understand where this is all going, keep an eye on X Twitter. Yeah, the X spoilers are going to be blowing up. Big time because people are going to lose their minds. There's just so, so much in here and it is all just spectacular stuff. All right, that's what we have for that wonderful week of new issues. And now uh, jumping over to the realm of collections, a bunch of stuff on the way. If you're a fan of Emma Frost, especially in the buildup to the Hellfire Gala, we have a couple of volumes of Emma Frost collections. There is the latest volume collected of Nick Spencer's Spider-Man and uh, Dawn of X volume 16, continuing on with the mutants. So damn good. Over on Marvel Unlimited, we've got an issue of Black Widow. Uh, there's a issue three of Modoc Head Games, and there's plenty more X Men Legends and so King and Black number four, uh, Mortal Hulk Flatline. Wow, it's a great, it's a great week on Marvel Unlimited. A great week here in brand new comics, and a great week here on the podcast. Because uh, Tucker, again, who are we talking with? We're talking with Charles Holmes of The Ringer, and we're talking about X Men number one eighty eight. That's X Men from two thousand and four. That series. Written by Mike Carey with pencils by the unbelievable Chris Pachalo. We're digging into Supernovas with Charles Holmes. And before we get to our interview this week, we have a brand new trailer for Marvel's Wastelanders Old Man Star-Lord. This is the brand new podcast, the first two episodes of which will premiere next week, June 1st on the Sirius XM app and desktop player and wherever you get your podcast. So listen to the trailer right now. Sometimes the bad guys win. 
bad guys won. You're saying they're dead. You're certain of that? A war zone. effort on the part of Captain America is Black dead. Widow is dead. Thor Iron is Man dead. is dead. Rocket? Yes. Earth officially sucks. I'm Peter Quill, but you can call me Star-Lord. You are a guardian of the galaxy. A long time ago, a long, long time ago, we were the guardians of the galaxy. But uh, that was before, and well, this is now. Even if you still consider yourself the guardians, you're 30 years too late to make any difference here. It's a quest. The Guardian's epic quest for cosmic glory. This mission of atonement you're on, it's gonna get us both killed. It'll be fine. I got my six shooters and my booster boot. Ugh, the last time you tried to fly in those things, you ended up with a concussion and a broken arm. Before this is all over, I'm gonna prove I'm just as good as I ever was. Just you wait. Yeah, just give me a sec. Not the walk, man. It'll take me to my happy place. Hang on. You really have the attention span of a toddler. All right. Okay. All set. We can proceed. Marvel Entertainment and Sirius XM present Marvel's Wastelanders, Old Man Star-Lord. Starring Timothy Busfield as Star-Lord, Chris Elliott as Rocket, Patrick Page as Craven the Hunter, Dylan Baker as Doom with performances by Vanessa Williams, Asif Mandi, and Danny Glover. Explore an apocalyptic alternate future of the Marvel Universe in Marvel's Wastelanders, Old Man Star-Lord. The first series in the thrilling new multi-part audio epic premieres Tuesday, June 1st on the SiriusXM app and desktop player, plus everywhere you listen to your favorite podcasts. Learn more at SiriusXM.com Wastelanders. All right, Tucker, let's let's get weird on this reading club because uh, we're going to be talking about some some fun X-Men stories. And to do that, our guest this week is Charles Holmes of The Ringer and much more. Charles, how you doing? Yo, I'm doing so well. Yeah, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a writer at The Ringer. I host two uh, podcasts, The Ringer Music Show and uh, The Midnight Boys with Van Lathan on The Ringerverse. But I am so happy to be here with you guys on this podcast. It's an honor. Hell yes. Thank you for joining us. I'm curious, one, how you had time to reread the issues that we're talking about, and two, if you could give us an intro to the books that we'll be discussing today. Today, we will be discussing one of the hidden gems of my childhood, X-Men Supernovas by Mike Carey and Chris Bocciolo. And it is, ah, it is exquisite. Well, I like that you say exquisite, and that leads us, you, you set it up nicely. We're going to put 30 seconds on the clock. We would love a 30-second summary of this story. You ready for that? Let's go. All right, I'll give you a countdown. Three, two, one, go. Yeah, so uh, there's only 198 mutants left. They need a strike force. Cyclops sees uh, Rogue in the field. He's like, you want to do it? Rogue's like, sure. Rogue gets a motley crew of people. We're talking about Mystique, Iceman, Cannonball, Sabretooth, you name it, they're, they're there. And they have to face off against the children of the vault, humans who were locked away and are now advanced because of technology. They have some fights, and then everybody is good. <laughs> <laughs> 
and then everybody yes. is good. That's how the story ends. <laughs> <laughs> I'm so sorry, guys. That's no. the best I could do in 30 seconds. <laughs> that was no, that so was, good. You nailed it. I, I, I didn't answer your previous question, but you're like, how did you find the time yeah. to read this? And I didn't realize when I was like picking my book how much Mike Carey packs, like how much information. So I was like sitting and reading it for a couple of days. And I'm like, I chose a book like that. I just can't zoom through. Like I have to like, and Chris Bocciolo, like he's my number one favorite X-Men artist of all time. And I have to look at every page because he packs so much in it. And I was like, you screwed yourself, Charles. There's too much. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's so many places to go with talking about this book. Specifically, you mentioned your childhood, you know, like what around this makes it mean so much to you? I think... Like any child, the comics books that you grow up with, there's a certain nostalgia. I remember going to the comic book store. And at this time, I was a big fan of what Brian Michael Bendis was doing on Avengers. And throughout my childhood, like I remember like Jim Lee and all of the X-Men being the team at Marvel. And when I was growing up, like I was old enough to be like, oh no, the Avengers are it. The new Avengers are it. And the X-Men, I think the comic books that were being created for the X-Men were great and they were amazing, but they weren't necessarily at the center of Marvel. So you got these storylines out after House of M, and you have Joss Whedon doing what he's doing on um, Astonishing. But what I loved what Mike Carey is doing on X-Men is that it's in this kind of pocket universe where none of the characters are flagship, really, characters of the X-Men. You don't have Wolverine on the team. You don't have Cyclops on the team. You have a bunch of villains. You had a bunch of characters that I had never heard of and a bunch of ideas that I had never heard of. So that's why I think I really fell in love with it because it honestly taught me a valuable lesson as a writer that sometimes you don't want to go for the easiest thing. When you're picking your X-Men team or whatever, you're picking your story, sometimes you just don't want to go straight to Wolverine and Cyclops. Sometimes you want to, like, get Rogue, dust off Cannonball, get your cable, get, like, Lady Mastermind. And that's why I love it, because it took a risk, and it made me, as a kid, realize that there's so much more to these side characters. And they can be just as good as some of the main guys. Is that What do you guys think, though? Yeah, I, that was the thing that was really unexpected to me and something I really enjoyed. And I think I think you're right. That is something that makes this book super special because, you know, it's easy to reach for those big characters for good reason because we all love yeah. them because they're incredible. But we also love these other characters. And, you know, we certainly could, you know, call them, you know, as some of the the favorites overall. So it is really cool. It's really interesting. Ryan, that was something I, I was... As usual, I go to you for for broader context. Were you at Marvel yet? So yeah, I was thinking about this. Um, so to to back up, I don't have like a great connection to this story or to this run. I remember like the Children of the Vault being like cool concept and stuff, but it, it's not something I remember being stuck in my head. And this was coming out right before I started at Marvel. But I was similar to you. I was like I was a new X Men, Bendis, Brubaker. You know, like that vibe of the the street level and the emerging like Avengers side of things more so at that time. And so this one sort of like doesn't have a place in my brain. It, it's weird. It's like, I know I've read it and I, you know, and, and I'm like you, it's like my carry great stuff, especially, you know, his pre-Marvel stuff with Vertigo and DC and, and, ever, and some stuff that he's done with us. And Chris Bashalo is like one of the greats. But I love your point, Charles, about 
how you think about it as a writer, because when you don't have those characters that everybody knows, you don't have the baggage of trying to find a new way to tell a story with them. Yeah. There's a lot you can do with, you know, Aurora and Northstar, Lady Mastermind, like, or, or Omega Sentinel, like, just go ham. Even Iceman, like some yeah. Iceman who's like an original X-Men, but in this run, you see Mike Carey doing stuff with him, powers-wise, and no one else had thought of. And I, we were joking, like, yeah, the only two people I think in the world who were like this, this run probably imprinted on were probably me and Jonathan Hickman, because you see the Children <laughs> of the Vault in his X-Men run right now. And what I think you're seeing is like, to me, in a lot of ways, X-Men Supernovas feels kind of like... I don't even know, like a very big influence, not just because he's using the children of the vault, but because Hickman tends to pack so many ideas, so many scientific ideas, like things that like he drops in one issue and you're not going to get until 12 issues later, even the way he explains powers. But most crucially, in my opinion, is that to me, there's no bad X-Men characters. They're just writers who haven't utilized them correctly. And I think you're seeing that now, like, I would have never thought that I would care about Sync, ever. And now, in the current X-Men, it's one of my favorite issues of all time, him with X-23 and their whole story. And I think what you see with Mike Carey and X-Men Supernovas is he takes a bunch of people like Cannonball and Iceman and Rogue and Sabretooth and like Omega Sentinel, and he's like, I'm going to make you care about these characters together by the end of this six-issue arc. And, yo, I got to give it up to Carey. He did an amazing job. To your exact point, Charles, you know, a great writer can make you care about anything. If a great story can be told, it can be told about any character, any place, any time, anything. I, I was curious if you had been thinking about these issues and this time in history because of what's been happening lately in the current X-Men run and everything going on in Krakoa in particular. I think this run has never left my heart. Mm. And I think it was when I was reading Hickman's X-Men, it was more so of like, oh, wait, someone else not only loved this run, but realized that like the Children of the Vault are great X-Men villains and there's still plot there. There's still character there. There's still something to mind there. And Hickman can do whatever he wants with the X-Men. And I think a very unsung thing about his run is that like he's using all of X-Men history. He's not running from it. He's using characters that like were not either popular characters or very controversial characters and he's making you fall in love with all of them. And I think that like I picked this book specifically today because I also think it has like kind of like powerful themes. Can I read you my favorite quote from I think it's either the first or second issue. Hell yeah. Please. Emma Frost says to Charles Xavier, she says He's what you made him, Charles. She's talking about Cyclops. They're all what you made them. But you don't get to change your mind when you see what you've made. Only God has that prerogative. And that, to me, is such a powerful thing in X-Men Supernovas. And I think it's what we're seeing in House of X, Powers of Ten, the new X-Men stuff going over on in that universe is that like when you bring Xavier back into the fold or he's around, you realize it's this father figure that at certain times loves what he's created and thinks that this is the way to save the world and then sometimes recoils and is like oh my god i've created monsters and then you have his children being like you created us we are your soldiers 
we look to you. You cannot cast us aside because you don't like what you sired. And I think what you're seeing in X-Men Supernovas with the Children of the Vault is at this time, the X-Men, because of decimation and because of what Scarlet Witch did to the mutants, they are having a crisis of like, how do we survive? What do we do? How violent do we become? Like Rogue in this is not the rogue that you're going to see right now if you're reading comics. She's a very desperate person. So is Cannibal. So is Iceman. Iceman has a relationship with Mystique in this. It's insanity. And I think the thing that you see in the best X-Men runs is that like they're not really superheroes and they're not really villains. They're not the Avengers. They're, they are a race that's trying to survive. And I think the stories that I grapple with the most are like, what is it to be a people that all you want to do is survive and everything in the world is trying to make that an impossible feat? I mean, that's, that's what makes X-Men comics so relevant for so many people. It's so great. And uh, yeah, I think that's why we latch onto them so easily. It's interesting you 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 know bringing up the point of this is right after decimation and the desperation that the characters are feeling and those parts are very relevant and very like forward but at the same time you could pull this back and it feels like this could happen in in a lot of different eras for X-Men. It feels yeah. very timeless at the same time because I think Mike Carey's writing is so strong and he gives so many great moments to these characters. You know, like the Iceman has those great moments where at first he's like figuring out, oh, I could do cool things with my powers I didn't know I could do before. And then like uses that to great effect at the end of the first arc. Rogue is one of my favorites. You yes. Know, oh. Top to bottom. Oh. And in here, she's so great. Getting Cable in there. Cable has like some really fun little lines. Mystique, she's a treasure in X-Men comics. She does so much with so little. It's just, it's, it's insanity. And I want to say, if you're a Rogue fan, what I also love about what Chris is doing on the art in this and what Mike is doing is like, what people use, like, Rogue's characters, what they tend to do is like, she she uses one power at the time. And in the first issue of this, she touches Emma and she touches um, Cyclops and she turns into like Diamond and then she like refracts the optic blast through the Diamond. And that's what I think is like the little stuff I love of like, these characters have such cool powers. Like how can we stretch them in a way that you've never seen? And as a kid, I was like, Rogue can do this? What? Like, that blew my mind. Charles, I love the way you talk about these things, how much you clearly love it, and how much you clearly love all the details that we're talking about here. Yeah. Could we go back to when you first started reading X-Men comics, what those first experiences were, like, what drew you in to begin with to where you are today? The X-Men, I will tell you, the X-Men scared me because I picked up Grant Morrison's run, and at that point, like, the X-Men did not look like superheroes. Like, the way Frank Quitely was drawing them, it looked like that you didn't want to be a mutant, whether it was, like, Beak or Glob or whatever. You were just like, I don't what is this? And I was too young of a kid. I didn't even understand it. And now that run is one of my favorite runs. But, like, at that time, I was also seeing, like, the X-Men movies. And the movies didn't make me want to be a mutant as a kid. I was like, being a mutant is is it that great? Like, I would be Spider-Man. I don't know <laughs> if I want to be Beast. It sounds terrible. And I think I am probably way more of an X-Men fan than I realized just because I didn't realize that, like, comic books could do that, where when I read Ultimate Spider-Man, that was another, like, early comic book I was reading. Like, you want to be Peter. It's It seems cool. But I think the genius thing about 
the X-Men is, is that like you root for them, but you don't want to be them. And as a black man, like sometimes I think, you know, the metaphor waxes and wanes and sometimes it's used well and sometimes it's used not, but like you can see like as a black person, you're like, oh, like I get this because like I would never change being black for the world, but you can't act like it's not like society doesn't make it a burden. And when you're reading the X-Men, you realize how these powers are a burden to them because society hates them and tries to destroy them. So yeah, I will say the X-Men at first, man, scared the living crap out of me. (laughs) But also, would you guys allow me to go on a brief tangent really quick? 100%. Oh, I love it. All right. Why I also picked this book is because one of the, the things I've done for my entire life with my brother is create your own X-Men teams. By Carrie, I was like, dog, this is the team you chose? And it wasn't until like I like read it, I was like, this is what goes into a good X-Men team. So I want to ask you guys, in your opinion, what makes a good X-Men team? A good lineup? Um, you have to have a good leader. I think Rogue does really well here, but my top leader is always going to be Storm. You need someone with that like Nowadays, that Wolverine mentality, which is why Sabretooth works really here. Someone who's going to do the dirty deeds, who's going to come out bloody, and someone's going to be like, what just happened? And he's not going to say anything because, you know, he doesn't want them to be part of his business. You need a bruiser. You need someone strong. And you probably need a good mentalist or telepath or something like that, some misdirection. And you need conflict. Conflict is so important Hmm. in an X-Men team um, because they're a family in a lot of senses, and families don't always get along. Like, especially Rogue conflicting with Cyclops in this. I love. She's like, you gave me this job. Step off. I know what I'm doing. Yeah. Uh, Those are are components for me. I would say probably the group that I lean towards, because, you know, every single team kind of gives a good span of the spectrum of what a mutant group can be, is X-Force. Ryan, your point about conflict struck accordingly, because it's like characters who... I think on a surface level might maybe even outwardly and openly dislike each other in a group. But when it comes down to it, the heart is there and they'll fight for each other. And I just love the juxtaposition of that anytime in any team. Yeah. I love these answers. I love these answers. <laughs> I, I think the other thing that that's, and that's part of what I get into the conflict is you also need a good conscience on the team. Yes, you have Wolverine who is going to do what needs to be done, but you also need someone to step back and be like, this is not who we are, even though oftentimes it's who they are. (laughs) I think those things are important. Now, Charles, you mentioned you and your brother would put together teams. What's the team for you? What do you need out of an X-Men team? All right. My top four things I need from a team. I need it to be unpredictable, okay? When I saw Grant Morrison's run, he could have picked anyone. And I'm like, why is... Why is Emma and Jean Grey on the same team? They have the same powers. What what is this? And then I realized, oh, the relationship with Scott. That's interesting. And then I'm like, Wolverine is here. And then you have Wolverine, Scott, and Jean. And like you have these little things. And now you have kind of three telepaths because you also have Xavier. So that's what I love. I love unpredictable. Next, I love the interpersonal relationships. The best thing about X-Men is that it's a soap opera. I need a soap opera cast. This needs to feel like at any point, this person and that person, they're going off, they're having sex, they're arguing, this person has a kid, (laughs) that person's going to the future. I need that. I love that. Number three, complementary power sets. And what I mean by that is like, I want powers bouncing off. They're a team. I need a fastball special in there. Nightcrawler just teleports he needs to work with wolverine to be effective that's what i love fourth they need to be iconic when i saw the cover of supernovas i was like oh 
what is this? I've never seen something like this. When you see the cover of New X-Men, when you see this cover of Astonishing X-Men, you're like, oh my God, that Jim Lee X-Men run. It makes you want to be an X-Men. And this is my team currently, if I can make my own. We got Wolverine, Cyclops, Sabretooth, Mystique, Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver. Ooh. Wow. Ooh. You know what I'm saying? I want a lot of conflict in there. Yeah. And I, I I want some surprises because right now we're like, Scarlet Witch, Quicksilver, are they mutants? Are they not mutants? Blah, 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 blah. You know what I'm saying? You got the Sabretooth and Mystique to balance off the Wolverine and the Cyclops. They're all going to kill each other or they're all going to be the most dangerous <laughs> X-Men team alive. <laughs> oh, man. You'll enjoy Hellfire Gala. <laughs> <laughs> Guys, all right, man. Let me just tell you this too. I've been reading comic books forever. But sometimes, like, I might only go, like, once a month. And I will say the current X-Men stuff, as we go, like, I got to go every week. I'm like, dog, what? Like, I can't I can't <laughs> slack on this, you know? <laughs> just you wait. Oh, man. I want to just shout out, though. You know, Mike Carey, the thing I think is genius, the thing is, like, Hickman and him seem like they would have, like, great discussions together. Because if you read Supernovas, especially those first six issues, like he's taking characters that like, I don't know if Omega Sentinel was the most popular character. Cannonball has always been there. Cannonball is one of my favorite X-Men, but like, he's not like, sometimes he's just window dressing or like somebody like a Bobby where he's just like, I'm going to take an Iceman. I'm going to take a Mystique and I'm going to twist them up and I'm going to use the history because there's a lot. When I was a kid, I was confused picking up Supernovas because like, he's like, Cable's going back to Providence. Like he's doing all of these little things that I'm like, where is this coming from? But I think the beauty of comics is that like, as a kid, it teaches you there's this history that's happened before and it's not a weakness, it's a strength. And I think that like, I loved Bendis's run. I loved Morrison's run. I've loved Carrie. I love all these people I grew up on. And like, sometimes I think it's not that like Hickman is such a better writer than any of them. I think sometimes it's just like, it takes a lot of writers rolling this like boulder up a hill. And then like, it takes one writer to realize, all right, we're ready. And he's the person to push it. And to me, Hickman's that guy who was just like, Bendis did such great stuff. Carrie did such great stuff. Like Morrison did such great stuff. We're finally at the point where the X-Men now are the center of the Marvel Universe again, and I need to tip this over. And that's what I love, because it's like, it's a love letter to the comics I grew up on. Yeah. Uh, Part of it, of course, also goes to having incredible artists. I think that's a hallmark of of X-Men. You know, I think of, of course, Lee and Kirby, but, you know, when they came back, you would eventually get John Byrne, and then you'd have Ryan, you'd have um, Ramita Jr., you'd get Silvestri, you'd get Jim Lee, you'd get, like, amazing artists helping to make that boulder move yeah. so much quicker and easier and more palatable for the wider audience because you've got cool ideas and cool things happening, but then you get now a Pepe Larraz and, you know, a, a bunch of other, you know, R.B. Silva and other folks who can then say, these ideas are so good and I'm visualizing them in a way that makes them even cooler. And I think that's part of what is great about this run that we're talking about because Chris Pachalo is just so good. I, he can fill an entire page with things that you are going to look at, but there are times when he like really focuses your eye and you get to see the cool things that they're working on. Like the children of the vault designs in particular, I think are so inspired and like, they don't look like any other character. They have elements, but like, even as they've sort of evolved in their appearances, 
They look so friggin' cool. And that's a big credit to Chris. I'll argue anyone. I'll argue anyone any day that Chris is the best X-Men artist of all time. And the reason I say that is, is because of the influence and the impact he's had over generations. I had to go get Generation X to see, and I was like, I was looking at him like, is this the same artist? And then you pick up something like X-Men Supernovas and you see like, he's still pushing his art. The way like Iceman's skin looks like tree bark, but ice, the way he's overlaying panels, the way he's designing new characters. I think of like the striking image of Mystique kissing Iceman on that cover. And I'm like, this is one of the best X-Men covers ever, like ever. And then you see what he did with Bendis on the Cyclops team. And you realize that this is an artist more so than any other X-Men artist. Like X-Men artists like may have had more impactful, like runs but chris to me is the artist that like if you see where he started in his career and where he is now he never stops evolving and that to me is like maybe sometimes like i like him on this book versus this book or this scene versus that scene but it's never enough for him no two comics chris draws are the same and i gotta shout out him man like you are like my favorite x-men artist of all time keep it going man (laughs) (laughs) i love his ability to combine brilliant sequential storytelling panel structure you know all the traditional hallmarks of a comic book with just his naturally more abstract style the marriage of those two things is really what makes it transcendent in a way because it isn't photorealistic because it is by its very nature sort of irreplicable. And I think like at times it comes with the territory where it's going to be like, whoa, like this page is a lot to take in. Or other times where, you know, the form of it allows it to become something that no other artist can become. Speaking of transcendent art, I love in issue 188 that like Sims 2 style level rendering of the Xavier Institute oh, yeah. in the back. <laughs> <laughs> I saw that and I was like, I totally <laughs> forgot about this. This was probably mind blowing. <laughs> I love it so much. It's so 2006 in the best way. I love the swimming pool, the tennis court, the basketball court in the background, like the low res tree leaves. It just rules. Uh, I I had to mention that. I love it so much. Now, I want to prompt you, Charles, because you speak so passionately about these things. I feel like you are someone who has an arsenal of X-Men hot takes. And I was curious if anything comes to mind when I mention that. This, I don't know if it's a hot take, but the greatest X-Men of all time And y'all got to put respect on his name. And by y'all, I mean society. Cyclops is the greatest X-Men of all time. He was right. And like, just the the (laughs) character assassination sometimes he goes through is like, I'm not rocking with that. Like, I'm not, I'm not rocking with it. Cyclops is the best X-Men of all time. And I'll, I'll go to my grave thinking that, okay? Also, the greatest woman X-Men of all time, because we want to be real, like the work that these writers have put in to make just a stable of strong women that are better than the men. Like Storm whipped Cyclops' ass and he's my man. But Monet might be uh might be the yeah. greatest of all time. She can be better than Storm at the end of the day if we want a hot take. If we want a hot take on just That's character what she yeah, can I do. Love that. That's a hot take. <laughs> I'm sorry. You guys asked for the hot take. That's good. Uh did you read X Corp yet? 
That's Monet's book, man. She shines in that one. Really? Yeah. It's All right, her- don't ruin it. No spoilers. I'm going. <laughs> I need to go. It's M and uh, an Angel as the heads of the X Corp. And if you're a fan of X Factor of that run, I'm, I'm upset you haven't read this yet. Um, <laughs> I want to get back to to this run a little bit before we wrap up uh, because we didn't really talk a ton about the antagonists of this this arc. It's the Children of the Vault. One of the things that I loved is the the first two issues of this. When I was rereading it, I was like, it's there, but I'm not getting it yet. And like halfway through the second issue or into the third, it's like they turn the gas on and they start rolling with it. And it's only then you actually get the name, the children of the vault. You get a sense of what they are, of why they are, of how they function, of like starting to feel around them. They're such good villains and such like pure thought of like that, like mutants, humans, trash. (laughs) crash we got to get rid of you this is ours now we were just waiting and like that hubris is sort of built into their storyline here but i really dug them and their introduction in here what's your take on the children of the vault charles i think as a kid i had no idea what my carry was talking about like my brain wasn't formed yet but that shows you how amazing of a writer and like how amazing of a artist Chris was because like from the other characters, like the children of the vault didn't have to say much, but the way the X-Men were talking about them, the way Sabretooth was scared. I'm like, Sabretooth scared? What the hell? I'll be honest. I just reread this. I don't know half of what the children of the vault's powers even are. Like, But still, they have this menace to them. And why I think they're such great villains. And the reason I think Hickman probably cherry-picked them and was like, I need to do something else with them is because like, what they're fighting for is bad. But to get their point, they didn't ask to be created. You know what I'm saying? But they came out to this world that they think that, like, we're the next in line. And the funny dichotomy of them, especially in the Hickman books, is that, like, the X-Men are like, we're the future of humanity. And then you have the children of the vault and be like, we're the future of humanity. (laughs) And both, like, have points. And I think what you get in Mike Carey's run is that, like, they're menacing, but they're not evil they are fighting because they think that it is their right to inherit the world and at various points in the x-men runs they felt the same way and what i love is is like if they weren't designed so well by chris you wouldn't believe it but like some of the designs for the children of the vault are so intense i'm like these are like just great x-men i want them to be x-men these are great designs (laughs) sorry i'm getting hyped up all over again yeah (laughs) I love it. You've mentioned a lot of stuff you're excited about. Could you define the things that you're most excited about now, the stuff that you're looking forward to, whether it's Hellfire or beyond? Hmm. Yeah. All right. Cool, cool, cool. So my man Hickman, I'm sorry. You got to get back in the lab. The street's been needing that new book, okay? You know what I'm saying? We've been needing that, all right? Whatever Hickman, I don't know if it's been announced yet. Whatever Hickman's working on next, we need that, bro. Second of all, the team that I was like, at first, I'm like, what is this team? What is this, Dugan? I don't like this. And then I sat with it for a day. I'm like, this team is genius, bro. I'm like, he's brought back Sync and Wolverine and Rogue. What is going on? Like, that's also the mark of a good X-Men team is I hate it the first day. I'm like, what is this? I can make a better team. And then I started <laughs> looking at the cover again. And I'm like, dog, man, come on, bro. This is amazing. So I, I need that book to drop. Hellfire Gala also 
I've been seeing some of the art, you know, the Hellfire Gala. I was a little on the fence. I was like, ooh. Then I started seeing the interior art and I'm like, I'm pumped for the Hellfire Gala. I'm pumped for the new X book, the the first X-Men team of this era. And yo, Hickman, come on, bro. I love it. How did you feel about Polaris uh, winning the X-Men vote? Did you have, were you pulling for someone in particular? If we want hot takes, if we want hot takes, get Polaris out of here. Polaris, I love you. I love you. But no, we like Cannonball. Y'all ain't got no love for Cannonball. Come on. And I know a lot of people like Cannonball's got his chance. He was an Avenger. He's a new mutant, blah, blah, blah. He's even in my carries run. But that's because Cannonball is amazing. His power (laughs) set is amazing. Okay. The Polaris people are going to say that. Wow. And for anybody who needs to uh, give their opinions to Charles, you can go to twitter.com slash Charles X Holmes <laughs> to let him know uh, how you feel about his hot takes on uh, on Polaris there. And make sure you stream. I know you guys, I know this is a comic book podcast, but make sure you stream the Ringer Music Show. Uh, I have even worse hot takes on there. <laughs> and the Ringerverse every week where we talk about everything comics, the Midnight Boys, pew, pew. This week, well, we're talking about a lot. We're, we're ramping up for Loki, though. Uh, I know this is an X-Men pod. And, guys, we have a special rule on, like, the Midnight Boys where we're not allowed to bring up the mutants coming into the MCU anymore because <laughs> we just can't. We just can't. We've been tricked too many times. That's we can't do it. <laughs> Charles, this has been such a fun time. What a pro X-Men fan. Thank you so much for joining us. This is awesome. Yo, thank you guys. I am honored. And I'm going to leave the audience with something very, very special. Cyclops was right. Your boy out. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you once again to Charles. Just a fan out on these things. It is just so much fun. Uh, It's just a great shot in the arm reminder of what it's all about. This episode of Marvel's Pull List was produced by Ryan Panagos, Tucker Marcus, Jorge Estrada, with help from Megan Bagala. Jill DeBoff is our director of audio. And Brad Barton is Marvel's Pull List audio development manager. Um, he really, really wanted to be a child of the vault, but he just couldn't wait around. Man, you know, Tucker, Brad is so impatient. Yeah, life in that vault takes patience, if nothing else. And Brad Barton got none. Yeah, Brad. <laughs> Yeah. Deal with that. I'm Ryan. And I'm Tucker. This is Marvel. Your universe.